In my experience, once politics comes to be dominated by abstraction and ideology, it makes it much more difficult to find common ground about anything and much easier to simply fall into an us-versus-them approach to things, which is very clearly where we are now in spades. The challenge of democracy is to figure out how do we mobilize that collective intelligence to meet the problems that we face together. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast. This episode is part of the Life in the Land project, which is a series of films and podcasts produced by Stories for Action, which hears from folks that interact with the complexities of Montana's landscapes, speaking to the value of locally led and collaborative work and the holistic approaches needed for healthy communities and the ecosystems that they're a part of. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. It's been a few months since our last podcast episode, And we've been busy with some different projects, including two additional films for the Life in the Land project, which we aim to have released this summer. We've also been conducting outreach for the project to let as many folks as possible know about it and have been attending workshops and gatherings that are incorporating the films. You can check out all of the Life in the Land films and podcasts at lifeintheland.org. This content is made to be shared, and it's out there to be used as a free tool for organizations and community groups to kick off workshops, community conversations, or to incorporate into curriculum to look at how holistic and locally guided initiatives can apply in your own region or community. If you would like to use the content publicly for any purpose, we just ask that you send us a quick message through the website, lifeintheland.org, to let us know how you're using it so that we can take note of it in our impact reports. Also, let us know if we can support your screening or gathering in any way, including technical support or sharing a very simple screening and discussion guide. In today's podcast episode, I'm honored to speak with Daniel Chemis. I'll share more about Daniel's background in a moment, but this conversation takes a step away from our typical Life in the Land conversations, where we're often speaking with folks involved in a specific collaborative and locally led program on the ground. Today, we'll be looking at some higher level concepts around the collaborative process. How can we make our decision-making processes, including local and state policy, more functional? We also touch on if and how we can navigate out of the seemingly dysfunctional partisanship and polarization that we see around us. Maybe at this point, we've normalized that this is how our politics and social debates operate. And while differences and conflict is a necessary human element, and by no means anything new, I think many of us can acknowledge this heightened level of us versus them, where to me, as an observing member of the public, it seems that our legislative bodies are spending a majority of their time screaming at the other about ideologies, with no intent to actually listen to the other side and much less time actually working together to move programs and policy forward that benefit the greater good of society, which as we know, there are plenty of pressures, current and coming down the pike, that need real bipartisan action. 
And again, this is just the picture that I get as a member of the public, observing from the outside of the political sphere. But it seems that that picture trickles down to our personal social interactions, where we think we have to play along with this narrative of divisiveness and picking a side. But what I see, and Daniel will touch on this, is that on the more local level of decision-making and working groups, there's more of a glimmer of hope in seeing people allowing their human connection and shared connection to place to be stronger than partisan divides. Not always, of course, but maybe there's a way we can let this philosophy actually trickle up to the state and national level to be reminded of how good it feels and just how much is actually possible when we do find ways to be in better relationship with those who have varying opinions and backgrounds and when we can truly listen to one another's challenges and fears. Daniel will touch on this, and he'll also remind us of the importance of taking lessons from history, as well as learning things from the successes of our collaborative wins. Daniel Chemis has divided his public career between democratic theory and practice. He has been an active politician, author, and thought leader on the topics of community-guided governance and decision-making based upon citizens' rooted connection to place. Chemis grew up on a small family farm in eastern Montana and graduated from high school in Sydney, Montana. He earned a BA in government from Harvard University and a Juris Doctor from the University of Montana's School of Law. Chemis served in the Montana House of Representatives from 1974 to 84, rising to be Speaker of the House. He went on to become the mayor of Missoula, a city in western Montana, from 1990 to 96. Utney Reader recognized Chemis as one of its 100 visionaries in 1995. He was awarded the Charles Frankel Prize for Outstanding Contribution to the Field of the Humanities by President Clinton and honored with the Wallace Stegner Prize from the Center of the American West. Chemis has authored the books Community and the Politics of Place, The Good City and the Good Life, and This Sovereign Land. His most recent book, Citizens Uniting to Restore Our Democracy, was published in 2020. In this book, by examining the historical and current context of American society, Chemis reminds us that when we bring our problem-solving skills to bear as engaged members of collaborative communities, we can rise above the divisive partisanship and polarization that's so common today and move on to the truly democratic ground of the common good. I was honored to have Bill Milton join me in conducting this interview with Daniel. Bill, who is also on the steering committee for the Life and Land Project, is a cattle rancher in the community of Roundup in central Montana and is engaged in a variety of entities on a local, state, and national level as an advocate for finding symbiotic relationships between people and the landscapes that they're a part of. Bill was a founding board member of the Montana Land Reliance and participates in many working groups in central Montana, including the Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition, Win It Aces, the CMR Community Working Group, and the Muscle Shell Valley Community Foundation. Bill has a particular interest in helping ranchers and local communities figure out how to monitor the health of working landscapes. Bill is a recipient of the Lands and Livelihoods Award from the Western Landowners Alliance, and he and his wife Dana received the Leopold Conservation Award for their contributions to the stewardship of working lands. For this conversation, Bill and I joined Daniel at his home last month, and I began by asking if he could share any moments that stood out to him from his own story, 
from childhood onward, in which he saw as moments that influenced his career's work and philosophies. He told me that after he served in the Montana State Legislature and was looking to write about that experience, he had spent some time thinking back on where his perspectives in politics and the importance of community-level empowerment came from. Part of it, as with most people, is that I took on the politics of my parents. But more important, I think, as I searched back into my childhood, I became aware that the way my family and our neighbors worked together out on those dry-forbidding plains of eastern Montana, that that experience of working together had fundamentally shaped how I would end up thinking about politics. And there were there are a couple of instances. One was branding, branding calves. There's no way you could do it on your own. The uh, people who raised cattle there learned from the very outset that it was best to do it together. Daniel also mentions an example of the concept of barn raising to bring communities together. He shares how when he was a child, his family's own barn fell apart, and the neighbors all showed up to help build the new one. That, uh, I think, really did instill in me the notion that if you're going to try to live at all, let alone live well in hard country, you're going to have to figure out how to, how to do it together. And that, in spite of the fact that, in many ways, we didn't necessarily like our neighbors. They, they um, were different than us. And um, if we had our way, they would have lived differently. But you had to take them as you found them. I thought this was an interesting point, and one I see repeated elsewhere that often we may assume that a small town is a tight-knit community, meaning everyone gets along and is a monolith. Daniel reminds us that even with shared experience and amongst a shared landscape, our human communities are dynamic, nuanced, and sometimes fractured. That sometimes those moments of helping your neighbor occur in spite of the fact that the neighbors butt heads on a variety of things. The people who ended up on those forbidding landscapes were highly individualistic. They almost all were determined to live their life their way. So it's not like they came with some kind of communitarian notion of the good life that people wanted generally to be left alone and to make their own decisions about their own farms and ranches. The forces of divergence were in many ways stronger than what drew us together. But what drew us together was living on uh, in challenging terrain. And here's Bill Milton, rancher from Roundup, Montana, and collaborative facilitator. Those people working individually, they were up against great odds, even working together if they could, and, and many of them did leave. 
And I'm just curious if that nature of ours even made that process of hanging tough in, in these really Spartan environments even more difficult. And then it, this is kind of a segue, but like, you know, we both are aware, like in particularly northeastern Montana in the early 20th century, I mean, there was, you know, a really budding socialist movement because of a lot of things going in the country financially and with railroads and all that. And so people were organizing early on around how to survive. So back when you growing up, this thing of, yeah, we want to do it on our own, but we have these existential forces right. that are almost impossible to combat as an individual. How, how, how did you see that play out? Well, uh, the way that I experienced it most directly was through the Farmers Union. Um, my family um, belonged to the Farmers Union, which was our way of not only coming together to try to get the best price on what we had to purchase, but also the best price on what we produced. So that was a, a very explicit and in many ways political um, way of meeting those challenges. Um, our neighborhood was one of the last places in the lower 48 to get electricity. And um, we got it because of the Rural Electrification Association. You couldn't do it except through some form of cooperation. Yeah, so this, I mean, this, is a, this is a great point. I mean, so many big things like that didn't get realized until people were organized enough that they could influence a decision. Yeah, so I, I think there's always this, to me, this sort of irony of this individualism, yet in agriculture, everybody's part of some organization <laughs> to leverage and get something that they think is important for their members. Right. And there's very few people that are just trying to do their own thing. Right. It's not very useful. <laughs> Daniel shares that growing up around his neighbors, it taught him that their deep-seated individualism was quite admirable. So he's always shied away from this concept that it has to be either or when it comes to individualistic self-sufficiency and coming together for collective benefits. I go on to ask him about a point he has touched on in his writing, where he questions if the current way that our politics are practiced, that it doesn't allow for people to express their own connection to place. I ask him to elaborate on this and what is lost by not allowing decision-making to occur in a way that expresses this connection to place. It seems to me that once you move beyond the local level, politics tends to become dominated more and more by abstractions and by ideologies as opposed to the nitty-gritty get her done kind of work that tends to predominate at the local level. So in my experience, once politics comes to be dominated by abstraction and ideology, it makes it much more difficult to find common ground about anything and much easier to simply fall into an us-versus-them 
kind of approach to things, which is very clearly where, where we are now in spades. And would you have, you know, it's no uh, silver bullet for it, but just suggestions on how we could shift to a place that allows that component to be integrated into how we practice politics? To me, it's crucial that as we think about the, the various forms of decay in our political culture, that we simultaneously pay attention to where the strength lies. I mean, it really is almost a physical matter. If any one of us found himself to be ailing and not having the kind of energy or resourcefulness that he or she might wish to have, we'd take a look and say, okay, A, what's wrong, and B, what do I have that I can draw on to heal myself? Well, in terms of the body politic, my experience is that we still do have some tremendous resourcefulness, at, at least at the local level. People still know how to solve problems together and realize opportunities together. I think part of, of what we need to do, or what I would like to see, is to put more emphasis on where people have done that kind of work together. If I were given the job of community organizing in, in communities in this part of the country, with an eye to trying to contribute to the healing of our political culture, what I'd be inclined to do is to go into a community and ask a broad swath of people, what are you most proud of that this community has done in the last 20 years, say? And really get people to focus not on what's wrong, but what we've done right. And then take it a step further and say, and how did that happen? How did you build that park? What did it take? And really dig into the interpersonal relationships that enabled that to happen. It's almost like exercising muscles that you've taken for granted or something. Let's, let's pay attention. Let's be mindful about what makes this work. So follow-up, so because of your experience here in this hometown of Missoula, can you remember a time when you were in the midst of just doing that work where people just stepped back and rather than just dealing with the task right at hand said, well, what's, let's just reflect on what's working and why it's working. Did you ever see conversations at a community level just come together for introspection versus solving problems? To me, that's part of what political leadership can provide. It's an opportunity to ask people to reflect on that kind of thing. If just anybody asked a group of neighbors to come together to 
talk about what do you what do you love about this place? Well, they might roll their eyes and so on. If the mayor asks them to come, they might still roll their <laughs> eyes, but they'll probably come. Yeah. Um, so there, there's a kind of convening power that I think can play that kind of role and should. So to take this a little further, did, did you, while you were mayor, create opportunities? I mean, you were doing good things, but did you create convenings where people could just reflect on what was going well and what wasn't going well? And I noticed that even in our own, my own business, my own ranch business, and, and even the community stuff we do with it, people are so engaged with the task at hand to just step back and say, how's it going? You know, what's working? And do we even, are we even clear on what the problem is? <laughs> Did you find yourself practicing that while you were mayor? In certain instances, we certainly did. I mean, there were points at which uh, some of the challenges that Missoula was facing with growth, for example, or relations between the city and the county, it, uh, it didn't seem to me that we were going to do an adequate job of dealing with those problems unless we looked at them in a larger context, both trying to take a big picture of possibilities and challenges and a long-term picture. Where have we been? Where might we be 20, 30 years from now? To me, giving people an opportunity and encouragement to look at the longer term and the bigger picture and to talk to each other about it is a fundamental element of leadership. I'm curious too on that, you know, just with, when you talk about the challenges you were having at the time in the early 90s with growth, do you see parallels to what's happening now? Just because I know I can't have a conversation in this town without that being a topic that comes up. And I agree with it, the pressures and the challenges it's creating. But it's not terribly new, right? It's just been in different forms. Are there parallels that you see with pressures happening? And at the time when you were mayor, what were some of those concepts that you guys were looking at on how to address that and work with all the different moving parts to have the best outcome possible? Well, I certainly do see parallels. On the other hand, there are some things about them that are quite different. The pandemic has clearly driven the current growth spurt to a certain extent, and it has fed off of the fact that people have suddenly discovered that they can do their business from anywhere. So, I mean, I'm a great believer in looking to history and digging deeply into history to try to extract lessons. I think that that's, that's just fundamentally important to any civilization that's trying to take good care of itself. But I'll say this too, as we here experience a kind of anxiety over the change that, that we feel happening around us, it's made me more aware than ever of 
how simple and shallow that anxiety is compared to what the natives in this country must have felt when they saw these new people coming and taking over. I think that memory has to, has to at least call on our best instincts as we try to deal with our own challenges. I appreciated Daniel mentioning this, and it's not that it's a situation that can be compared directly, but it is context that's important to keep in mind, and to be mindful of the villainization that is all too easy to do on this topic, which of course prevents us from getting anywhere productive. Yes, we need to be talking about it, but let's have conversations about how to productively engage with the changes we're seeing. Engage with community building. Engage with decision makers about how that growth takes place. But back to my original question to Daniel. I wanted to dig deeper into Daniel's experience on the realities of partisanship, valuing that he has worked on the inside of government on both the city and state level. As I'm just a member of the public, what I see from the outside are headlines and legislative session updates, which can seem stark and divisive between political parties. And I wanted to get some type of inside scoop from Daniel if this was always the case when he was in the legislature, if the reality behind closed doors actually involved people having civil discussions across political party lines and put aside differences to move policy forward to benefit the public. We took a quick break in our conversation at this point, and I want to mention something that Bill had brought up during this break, because it is nice to have these positive examples to turn to. He brought up a prominent example of this happening in Montana's legislative history of legislators from different political parties coming together for a plan for the greater good. And the example that Bill brought up took place in the mid-70s, when Montana legislators from both parties recognized a problem with profits from the state's coal mining ending up out of state, and they put their differences aside and established the Coal Trust Fund Constitutional Amendment which looked to the future and established a fund which is fed by coal severance tax, which is charged to companies extracting coal. The fund has grown over time, and from the interest alone, it funds things in this state such as our public schools, water and sewer projects, and grants and loans made to small locally owned businesses. While the trust fund continues to have opponents challenging it, It does prove to be an example of folks coming together across party lines who created something that looked to the long-term well-being of Montana's greater good. But now I'll turn back to the moment of asking Daniel about the reality of how frequently he saw moments like this happening behind closed doors in the legislature. Daniel says he spent a lot of time analyzing this phenomenon of people seeming to have similar feelings about where they lived, and yet that similarity did not play out in the politics that they were practicing. He says that led him to examine A, what are the forces that drive us apart in spite of the similarities, and B, if a shared place has potential to draw us together, how could that work politically? He said it was this analysis that led him to write his book, Community and the Politics of Place and also led to his involvement in local politics and running for mayor. I asked Daniel what differences he did witness as mayor in the functionality of this level of politics that presumably was a little more rooted in place and local community than the state legislature. I experienced it at different levels, I guess. For one thing, of course, like 
almost anyone who has the temerity to run for an office like mayor, you think, I've, I've got lots of good ideas about what this community should do and could do. And, and of course, I wanted to try out all of those ideas. And, and we did try out some of them, and some of them worked. But what, uh, what I think I learned most fundamentally was that the good things that happened in Missoula were almost always only very marginally due to anything I did. That what really made things work was people calling on their better instincts and overcoming their differences and figuring out how to work together. So to me, that was the most affirmative element of serving in City Hall, was the confirmation of the fact that as people, we're really quite good at solving problems and realizing opportunities, provided we've got decision-making structures that encourage that kind of thing. I think one of the biggest challenges now at all levels, but especially the national and state level, is the decision processes don't encourage that kind of problem solving to the extent that we need. They encourage something else, which is, is far less healthy. So do you feel like if you were to put your finger on, I mean, there's many different elements, but if you, were you were to put your finger on, why is it that decision-making is more functional on a local level? Mostly because folks involved are more willing mm. to let their guard down, to drop their ego a little bit, to listen to one another. Do you feel like that's more likely to happen at a local level? I think that's true. But I've come to believe that part of what enables that more constructive approach is something that has been identified way back in our history. Alexis de Tocqueville, when he wrote about democracy in America, identified one element that he thought above all enabled Americans to do a pretty fair job of governing themselves. And he called that enlightened self-interest. We all have self-interests that we'd like to pursue. So if I can't just get my self-interest on my terms, but I don't want to let go of my self-interest, turns out very often to be to listen to my neighbors who are often blocking my ideas and find out how could I get a fair amount of what I think is in my self-interest in conjunction with their getting a fair amount of their own. Well, that's, that's sort of a 
rough way of talking about enlightened self-interest. You, you pursue your self-interest in the context of the greater good. What I discovered is that at the local level, that it seemed much easier to get people into that mindset where they could pursue an enlightened self-interest rather than a narrow self-interest. So to me, the big challenge of good governance is how do we raise the level of enlightened self-interest as a motivator and lower the level of narrow self-interest? So there is something quite distinct about our participation in government at a city or county level, or even in committees or boards at a community, mm -hmm. is that the cause and effect relationship of that activity actually leads to a result that's quite visible and tangible in your real life. I mean, I've often argued that county government is a lot more important than people give it credit for because the decisions they make at that really close to the ground level are pretty darn impactful if they're bad or if they're good. And the same thing could be said for the city. So I, I think where we have a problem appreciating the connection between the federal and the state and the locals, that policies at the federal and state level and resources at the federal and state level create space for local people to do stuff. I mean, I could talk like in Roundup, they've gone through 10 years of replacing their water pipes that were all wood or lead or it was, you know, and so they're, they're almost done. And where did they get the resources to do that? From the state, which got resources from the federal government to have the money to actually do that. I sometimes think we, we don't appreciate, despite the dysfunction that is perceived in sort of the hyper sense, there still is work going on that's allowing us to do collaboration at the local level. Those resources are very real, and if they went away, local collaboration would have more difficulty. Mm. I think sometimes there's just a lack of appreciation of what the hell's going on, you know, and, that, and then we just get lazy about how we talk about things. Daniel brings this back to his previous thoughts about the importance of having those community conversations and asking, what have we done that we're proud of? And what allowed us to accomplish that? He says that likely folks would recognize that among many other efforts and civic qualities, that maybe state or federal funding was also an element that allowed them to accomplish this and allowing folks to connect those dots themselves. Bill asked Daniel if he has an example from his experience as mayor of Missoula where the city worked through certain issues where people didn't all agree but through the consent of governance, people voted to support those things. Daniel provides an example around a decision to preserve open space around the city. Back in the 80s and 90s, we actually had a couple of bond issues for open space fail. I think they were run at the county level, and so they might have been supported strongly within the city, but failed at the, um, at the county level. So after a couple of failures, a group of 
civic leaders, mostly old timers, got together and said, you know, we really need to do this and we've got to figure out why we're not succeeding. Well, part of what they discovered was they just hadn't done a good enough job of telling people what what the money was going to be used for. And people were not willing to be taxed for something that was a black hole as far as they were concerned. So just common sense kinds of things. We've got to clarify our message and probably we need to broaden our definition of open space so it might include soccer fields or something like that and get, get more people involved. So to me, it becomes once again a matter of pursuing enlightened self-interest. Um, the more light you shed on something, the, the better. I think part of what makes it possible to sort of evoke that enlightened self-interest is that people can actually see and step on and walk on and enjoy the fruits of their labor. So the less abstract the results are, the more likely they are to be compelling. That's why sometimes I'm surprised, <laughs> sometimes I'm surprised when there's just this general kind of like government isn't working. I think that the polarization we see at the upper level distracts people mm -hmm. from understanding the more nuanced nature of how unique our opportunities really are. Yeah. Yet, and, and then, you know, with this project, Life in the Landscape, and the collaboration that I see out in the, in, in the rural world, those appreciations and nuances come together because different people are sitting in the room listening to each other, you know, cultivating those skills of, of listening, and people recognize the world's pretty complex. But if we're smart, we could probably figure out how to solve some things that are really important to us. So I just, I'm always struck by the opportunity and the expression of people governing themselves. Yet on the other hand, people exclaiming that the whole thing's a wreck. Just doesn't make sense to me, but it does make sense to us. <laughs> Bill shares with us a story of local level decision making being carried out in a pretty promising way. And to me, the story also touches on different elements of how rural and urban divides can often be ideological illusions. To set the context, there's a ranch that lies just on the edge of Missoula, Oxbow Cattle Company, which produces grass fed beef, largely sourced to local area communities and customers and they manage their operation with a land stewardship ethic. The land that the ranch occupies also serves as prime wildlife habitat and is adjacent to the Bitterroot River. The area near this ranch also has been undergoing a great amount of land use change, going from open grasslands and agricultural use into subdividing for home development. The conflict arose when some area residents petitioned the county to develop a roadway to provide easier access to this stretch of the river. This would potentially create a high-traffic roadway, cutting through conservation easements, wildlife habitat, and the main operations area of Oxbow, 
in a way that could make it impractical for the ranch operation to continue. I'll let Bill continue the story, and just to note, the woman, Natalie, who he mentions, was an apprentice with Bill at his ranch in Roundup, but now works as a livestock manager for Oxbow Cattle. Bill makes sure to note that he was not present in this story and was a third-party observer. And this was a really fairly torturous experience over about a year trying to resolve this. And, you know, the owners of this, they would get people that supported what they were providing to share their point of view. And um, the commissioners had to go through their process to respect that a legitimate petition opposing the current status, you know, and wanted something different. So they had to entertain all that. Um, and Natalie, who had worked at our ranch for a couple of years, now works for them. And being a young person can be somewhat frustrated in looking at the world right now and thinking this process doesn't work all that well in terms of all the problems she sees. And so didn't have a lot of confidence in the power of decision making, you know, through a political process. And so she observed all this tumult going around this issue. And then finally there came a decision, you know, where the commissioners had to make a call. Bill is now referring to a particular public hearing that was being held on this issue. In the end, all three commissioners agreed that the current status is what would be preferable to the vast majority of people in the county in terms of we want this ranch on the edge of town to be successful. They're providing a lot of public opportunity. Uh, They're providing food. And Natalie referenced one of the commissioners who went above and beyond just making that decision. He just went into just a really thoughtful reflection on just the values involved in how they were making this decision. Not that it just hit all the boxes. And so this particular political elected official movingly expressed why they were making that decision. And Natalie sitting in the the audience was just sort of overtaken in emotion by good things can happen through a process like this. And sometimes it doesn't go your way. But I I mean, I I moved even talking about the story Mm -hmm. because here's this young person, and I know a lot of young people at this point in the world are really anxious about the world they're being given. And, and to see uh, a decision made and all the work involved and the people she worked for, that it, it turned out in her, in her case, it turned out to be, you know, a good decision. She, she had this feeling like, yeah, this is, this is how governance can work. And just a little bit of uptick on, I'm part of a democracy here. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm part of a place where people have to deliberate, deliberate about difficult decisions and um, to see that in action to hear people that hold political offices talk movingly about values was really important to her and i think will resonate with her you know as she moves through her life the only thing i'd add to that story which i love this story Part of what lies behind it and made it possible was some good, hard, grassroots political work of electing commissioners who ran on platforms of trying to preserve agricultural land in the county. And 
so on. And I guess the, the lesson I learned from that is those, those political activities are hard work and sometimes they don't pan out, but we have to engage in, in that kind of democratic activity as well. And we can never let up on doing that good, basic democratic work. I will mention something here, which Daniel will touch on more later, about the pressures that have been created due to our two-party political system. And Daniel won't frame it in a way of completely abolishing the two-party system, but rather to find ways to lessen the current stranglehold that it has on us. So to connect this to what Daniel was just speaking about and electing officials who we can count on to authentically represent the voices of the people, I often think this that if we didn't have that current stranglehold of obligation to party loyalty, as citizens, we may be held more accountable to research the values of the candidates, rather than just sometimes blindly filling in the circle next to R or D. And it may also hold our elected officials more accountable to stick to their promised platforms and values and to authentically represent the requests of their constituents, rather than perhaps feeling untouchable because they're the political party that's dominant in their district. Bill's story also shows that the rural-urban divide is often an illusion, as a lot of the folks who gave public comment against the road were dwellers of the city of Missoula, but they showed up in pretty impressive numbers to defend not only the wildlife habitat that would be impacted, as well as defend the ability for this ranch to stay in business. Recognizing the value in supporting local food systems and those doing the work to steward the land, and that the established connection that had been created between customers and their food source had also created a level of connection for people to the land. This story can also serve as a reminder for everyone to show up, to engage how you can, to speak up for those who we may see as being on the periphery of our own lives, because indeed, we are interconnected. So how do we better show up for one another? We pick up here with Daniel coming back to the topic of looking past the seemingly dysfunctional narratives of decision-making, to find ways to tap into a more place-based collaborative process. Part of my experience after I wrote that first book, Community and the Politics of Place, I found that it fit into something much bigger that was happening as all across the West, where people who had been battling each other over public land issues and natural resource issues and we're still battling each other, but we're looking for some other way to get, get things done and to take care of their watershed or their ecosystem. That the whole idea of collaboration was in the air and in the water, and thousands of people began to give it a try. But man, it, it was never easy, and it never is easy, because, in fact, we know in our heart of hearts that 
I'm right about this. Now, if everybody else would just see how right I am, then everything would work out. I mean, that's human nature. That's, that's how we go at things. And so moving a step beyond that is it takes a lot of work and it takes experience. It's like any skill worth learning takes practice. It takes doing it and finding out, oh yeah, that could work. But to me, there are a couple of elements that have, have enlivened the collaborative movement, if we call it that. And one is, I think there have been more and more people who have learned that every once in a while, it's okay to say, I could be wrong, right? To start a statement with, I could be wrong. And the other thing I think that has really increasingly stood in the way of making collaborative problem solving sort of the way we do things is the entrenched nature of the two-party system. Because the two-party system basically encourages and invites people to say, I'm right, and I know I'm right, and you're wrong, and I know you're wrong. And that's all there is to it. Um, and that's the way the two-party system works. We're probably not going to abolish the two-party system, but I'm convinced that if we want to make more space for genuine problem-solving, that we've got to break its stranglehold on our political system. Bill brings up a specific example to show the power of folks who can come together on a local level who may disagree on a lot of things and how they can leverage their collective ideas to make real impact. He mentions Blackfoot Challenge, a collaborative entity that began in the 1970s and brought folks together of varied interests and backgrounds to create collective benefits for people and place in the Blackfoot River Valley. I mean, let's take an example like close to you, Blackfoot Challenge. You know, back in the late 80s, they dreamed up, oh, well, we're going to do this conservation easement tool. Well, that was a bit radical. It took, I think, a couple sessions to get it through. But it was like rural ranchers and environmental people and agency folks recognizing this could be a tool that could address our problem. And that is a constituency that when they agree and they go to talk to someone up at the state capitol or even at the federal level, you know, our sort of inherently conservative legislators say, these are, these are the people who voted for me. And they've come to agreement at the local level that this is a tool that would improve their quality of life. And that leverage can really, in a state like Montana, can really make for decisions at a higher level. And, and I think that can, that I think I keep seeing the power of groups that actually agree that they don't know and figure out what would be a, a way going forward ends up making it easy for policymakers to say, well, they've done the work, we should try and support that. I, I see I see this more often than we may we may give it credit. Mm. 
I agree that uh, that's a very powerful outcome of, of place-based collaboration, is that very often it generates a bipartisan base of support for the solutions that people have come up with. And that can and often does have an effect in legislative bodies and so on. On the other hand, the, the power of partisanship all too often stymies that result still. And so I would make the case that people who have put in the energy and the effort to become good collaborators and to come up with collaborative solutions have an opportunity, if not an obligation, to go a step further and say, what does block our putting this into law? And if part of what blocks it is the deeply entrenched nat nature of the two-party system, then I think good collaborators have to put their shoulder to the wheel and start supporting the efforts to soften that stranglehold. And those efforts are underway and uh, they're real, but they're going to need the support of everybody who understands how toxic that stranglehold has become. And how would you soften that stranglehold? Just really calling folks out for not coming to the table in a better way? I think there are, there are various ways to do it. You have to dig down to what has made the stranglehold so, so powerful and what what I think surprises a lot of people is the two parties can't agree on very much of anything, but they agree on all the mechanisms that, uh, that guarantee the stranglehold of the two-party system. Anything that challenges that, both parties will unite in opposing. So, for example, redistricting. Redistricting is done by the parties and it's done in a way that maximizes the, the two-party system. The electoral college does not need to be the way that it is, but it serves the, the, the function of the parties. The way we do primary elections serves the parties. There are other ways to do elections. Alaska has adopted ranked choice voting, for example. What that does is undermine the, the power of the extremists in both parties. Um, so what I'm saying is there's a whole range of reforms now foot that would soften, if, if not abolish, the power of the two-party system. Those reforms, I think, 
have to be attended to seriously if we're going to see the, the really fruitful results of collaboration enacted more often than they now are. You make the case when speaking about the work that goes into making those kind of reforms. I think a really challenge in our, on our times is because of our distractive nature of just how we talk and communicate in social media, that to put that emphasis and understanding and to rally around and have the deliberation on those reforms requires a pile of time. And everybody's really invested in something that's important at their level. And some people are just, yeah, not, not even playing. I mean, I think probably five, 10% of our population actually makes most of the calls by, mm -hmm. by virtue of choice that people make. Because of the role of social media to, to sometimes confuse us and distract us and actually even tell us untruths. I mean, I, I do like that about collaborative groups. It's really hard not to tell the truth in a collaborative group and because you have diverse parties in a circle, if you say something overtly untrue, people usually call it out, yeah. you know, and not in a super judgmental or it's just like, no, that's not true because we can see it here. But on a national level, um, this disinformation makes it difficult for people to rally around reforms because they don't even have context anymore. And this is a really big danger, I think. Well, I mentioned earlier that I'm a great believer in looking to history wherever it offers good lessons. And I think in this case that our history in the United States, but especially in the West, offers a lesson in the nature of the progressive movement of a little over a century ago. The progressive movement really had its heart and center in the West. It was the West that led the way in creating initiative and referendum. The West led the way in women's suffrage and in direct election of senators. And the West could lead the way now in, in pursuing a range of reforms that would enable our democracy to work much better. What was it about the West? What attributes exist here that, that allowed those kind of changes to occur in our, in our governing process? Well, I think it goes back to the idea that the West was the last part of the country to see European settlement. And it was the last because it was the hardest place to inhabit. You couldn't make a go of it here unless you learned some lessons that other people didn't necessarily have to learn. And one of them was there's no way we can make this place work if only half of us are entitled to vote or, or to make decisions. The fact is, it takes everybody to make it work. Um, and that sort of echoed through all of those progressive reforms. 
they were fundamentally democratic in the sense that they gave ordinary people access to levers of power that didn't exist in other places. I wonder if there's sort of an irony there that, I mean, you talked about the independence mm -hmm. of people at the beginning, that this independence also translates, I want to have, I want to be able to affect choices that affect my life. And so if we're so independent, why in the hell can't I make that choice? And, and so it's almost like to be consistent with personal freedom, the point you make, how can we have half our population not participate in, in, in that expression? While we were on this topic of collaborative tendencies connected to necessity of survival, I asked Daniel about regional resiliency in the face of climate change and growing populations, as we look at lowering supply and greater demands on water, effects on our food chains, impacts on public health and climate migration. It's essential that we move outside of our local bubbles and work in functional relationships with other regions, whether we share a water source with them, are connected via food systems, or any element of ecosystem interconnections. If we don't have those functional collaborations with other regions and jurisdictions, a great deal is at stake. Since this will require working in good relationship with others who may not understand the specific needs of our local place, I asked Daniel if he has any thoughts on how to approach functional collaboration at this higher level to create the resiliency and relationships required for the pressures we're facing. Daniel picks up here speaking about his own observations of a public hunger to find a more functional form of decision-making. I'm reminded of a topic that I hear coming up more and more often these days when people talk about the the kind of disease within our body politic. I, I hear people mention the idea of some kind of universal service where people, especially young people, are given the chance and all kinds of encouragement to go out of their own communities to work with other people who have whole different life experiences than their own, um, and simply to broaden their horizons, but at the same time to give them an opportunity to experience what it means to work for the common good. People raise the, the example of the Civilian Conservation Corps back in the 30s, which did all kinds of great work, some of it still in place. But the most, probably the most important effect was what happened in the lives of the people who, who participated in that. So if there is any possible way for us to move in the direction of universal service. Probably can't make it compulsory. That would rub too many people the wrong way. But, uh, but if it can be encouraged, I think it would bear fruit that 
we can probably not fully comprehend at this point. Bill mentions how he agrees with Daniel uplifting programs like this, as he sees a lot of folks in Montana Conservation Corps, AmeriCorps, and subsequent programs such as Big Sky Watershed Corps working in rural communities in his part of the state. These programs place folks from across the country into a one-year position of service, where they work with organizations focused on everything from forest restoration to local food systems work, in exchange for funds that go towards their higher education. These folks absorb a myriad of skills, professional and personal, and are often placed in communities very different from where they grew up. I've had the pleasure of crossing paths with many folks in these positions, and it's always promising to see this cross-pollination of experience and culture, not only for the AmeriCorps member, but for the hosting community to gain the fresh perspectives and life experience that that person brings to the work and the people. I do think that experiences and programs like this foster the open-minded and adaptable leaders and citizens that are needed for resilient systems and societies going forward. I tie it back to the local level and ask Daniel if there's anything else that he witnesses in his own community of Missoula since his time as mayor in the 90s that continues to influence his philosophies. He says that when he stepped down from the office of mayor, as is typical, he experienced a series of interviews with folks. One question that came up a lot asked, what were the main lessons he learned from the experience? What I really came away from the experience with was the realization that, as I put it then, Missoula was several thousand times smarter than I was ever going to be. And to me, that is sort of the the root of what democracy is all about. The, the fact is that we are a social species. We operate not simply as individuals, but we have, we have gained almost everything that has enabled us to thrive as a species by learning from each other, by communicating with each other. In other words, what, what we have done is to, to put in play collective intelligence. Not my intelligence, not your intelligence, but what we can figure out together. And to me, that's fundamentally what democracy is all about. It's not exactly about addressing individual needs. It's about a species that faces problems, bigger and bigger problems. And how are we going to come to terms with these problems? Do you have the solution? Probably not. Do I? No. But together, we must have the capacity to solve these problems. But the challenge of democracy that's most engaging for me is to figure out how do we mobilize that collective intelligence to meet the problems that we face together. That was, that was a, a powerful and important statement. What I agree with a lot is that 
I, I do believe that we have more than enough capabilities of solving our problems right. if we could leverage our collective wisdom and our differences. I, I don't, what I love about collaboration is like and there's a difficult problem, but as you wrestle among different people's points of view, something emerges that is just born out of that activity. It literally is imagined out of that activity and it's, it is collective wisdom and action. Right. And an idea arises that no one in that room at the beginning of that conversation would have recognized existed. And so it, it, it was mm. almost a magical process of people willing to create space uh, with their ideas that all of a sudden a light bulb goes off and everybody says, that's it, let's go. Well, and th this is why I have maintained for a long time that what's important about the collaborative experience is not so much what it has done in watersheds and ecosystems and communities, but that it has recalled us to a fundamentally democratic experience, which you've just described. I mean, to me, that is democracy in action, when people have that experience. And it's because so many people have had it in collaborative settings that I, that's a big part of why I continue to have faith in democracy, because we keep proving that it works. Thank you so much to Daniel and Bill for sharing your time and insight for this episode. While a lot of these concepts discussed today aren't always tangible and can be difficult to articulate, I think you might find that in Daniel's book, Citizens Uniting to Restore a Democracy, he provides context and wording to make it all click. I know as I read through it, I found that even sometimes aloud, but constantly in my head, I was emphasizing, yes, that's it because I found that he effectively articulates that this connecting work, fostering healthy relationships, appreciating differences while still arriving at collective decisions, and constantly seeking out ways to improve access for people to engage in democracy, these are all of the elements that will improve resiliency for all life on our great planet. There's also a website that accompanies the book, citizens-uniting.org where you can find resources for engaging on the topics mentioned today, including reforms that strengthen democracy in our political practices. And you can also find an insightful blog by Daniel. You can find this link in this episode's show notes. This episode was recorded on the homelands of the Bitterroot, Salish, Kalispe, and other indigenous peoples who interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years, and still do today. This episode is part of the Life in the Land Project, and this season of the project is generously supported by the Greater Montana Foundation, which benefits the people of Montana by encouraging communication with an emphasis on electronic media, on issues, trends, and values of importance to present and future generations of Montana. This season is also supported by the Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, The Nature Conservancy, Kestrel Aerial, and with additional support from Blackfoot Communications, Sarah Rubick, Rodney Fry, Beth Madden, and Bill Long and Billy Miller. 
You can find info on how to support the Life in the Land project and also find all the films and podcasts at lifeintheland.org. Thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate it if you're able to share this episode with others and subscribe to the Stories for Action podcast. Find out more about all of our work, including films and workshops, at storiesforaction.org. And check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Stories for Action. Thank you all so much for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to create human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.